Okay, good evening, brothers and sisters in the faith. Uh, welcome to another episode of the Bible History Project. Our topic for tonight is called Sign of the Covenant. Before we proceed, we ask everyone to please stand for our opening prayer. Everlasting and most holy Father, thank you so much for giving us our life, blessing us with strength this very day. We came from various places, Father, including those who were joining us through Zoom and Facebook. Lord God, we thank you for the opportunity to spread your words and your divine message. Throughout our study tonight, we beg you, Father, enlighten our minds, encourage our hearts, and help us not only to understand your will, but to carry out our duties according to your desires. May you please continue to strengthen our faith and please have mercy to forgive all our sins. We ask and beg all things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Okay. Again, thank you so much for attending our Bible study for tonight. We are still here with the story of Abraham, or I should say Abram, because we haven't gone yet through the process of his name change. So Abram and Sarai. When we look at this picture, this is Abram and Sarai. Well, we think this is how they looked like when they were 99 years old and 89 years old. Of course, we cannot tell for sure if this is how they actually look like, okay? This is our best artist conception of what they might look like when Abram is 99 and Sarai is 89. It seems, seems like a, we came a long way from last week, right? Last week, how did they look like? Next slide. That was Sarai, right? And then this week, next slide, we, we went from there to this. That's called marital stress, right? Because of the issues they went through because of Hagar and because of their doubts concerning the plan of God instead of living by faith, of course, God decided to be silent. And so Abram did not hear from God for 13 long years. And when Abram became 99, at last, God appeared to him again. What did God say to Abram? Let's read Genesis 17, verse 1. So we are in chapter 17 now of the book of Genesis. With this pace, we might finish the whole Bible by Judgment Day. Well, we don't know when Judgment Day will be, but we're going to go through a slow process. Anyways, we are savoring the word of our Almighty God. Genesis 17, verses 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the Almighty God. Obey me and always do what is right. And so after 13 years of silence, God appears to Abram. And what does he say to Abram? He says, I am the Almighty God. In Hebrew, he is the El Shaddai. That's what El Shaddai means. All mighty God. This is the first instance of God introducing himself as the almighty God. So perhaps before, Abram did not recognize God as the almighty one, the one who can do all things, the one for which what is impossible can become 
possible. Maybe that's the reason for why he struggled with his faith a bit. And so here's God introducing himself again to Abram. This time he says, I am the Almighty God. Why does he tell him that he is the El Shaddai, the Almighty God? I believe it is to put Abram in his right place. God is Almighty. We as human beings, no matter how mighty we may be, we are nothing before the eyes of God. And so what does God say to him? Obey me and always do what is right. In other words, what God wants from Abram is to be righteous before him, to do what is right. It is but fitting that if we have a relationship with God, that we do our part, which is to do what is right in the eyes of our almighty God. That was true for Abram. It's also true for each and every one of us today. We have a relationship with God. Praises be to God that we have such a privilege and honor. Let us do our part and live a life of righteousness and holiness. God says, obey me and always do what is right. And so after this, what does God do with Abram? Because it's been such a long time. What does he do? 17, 2 down to 4. I will confirm, confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. Remember, 13 years ago, God cut a covenant with Abram that he would possess the land, right? That he would be a father of many descendants. And so 13 years later, perhaps Abram forgot, God says, I am confirming my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. However, in this covenant that God makes again with Abram, he expands it. Before, the covenant included several things, right? The land and all that. However, before confirming a covenant, before expanding his covenant, what does God do next? Let's read Genesis 17, 5 to 6, and let's also kind of jump to 15 to 16. No longer will you be called Abram. Let's pause there for a while. You know, God is into name changes. When God is going to give you an assignment of some kind, he will change your name. This is why the name is important to God. Because there are some who think, well, the name is not that important. It is to God. The name is important to God. And so here's God. After a while, right, after a relationship with Abram and Sarai, God decides he's going to change their names. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. God also said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to be called Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. And so here is God. He's telling Abram and Sarai, 
their names are going to change. Abram to Abraham. Sarai to Sarah. Why? Well, let's get an idea of God's purpose. Why does God want to show us this name change? And what is its significance, especially when it comes to our work together with God? Let's go to the next slide. We have Abram and Abraham, Sarai and Sarah. Let's find out, according to the Hebrew, what the meaning of the name Abram means. What does Abram mean in Hebrew? Next slide. It means what? Exalted father, right? Exalted father. And so he was an exalted father. But God decides to change his name to Abraham. What does Abraham mean? How many here know what Abraham means? The word Abraham, the name Abraham. How many here? Abraham means exalted father. What do you think Abraham means? Yeah, next slide. Father of a great multitude. You see, when we look at Abram, exalted father, that can be accomplished by anyone, right? Any man can be an exalted father in his own household. Am I right? It's a natural thing, an ordinary thing. But to be a father of a great multitude, that's extraordinary, right? That's not ordinary. That's not normal. That is miraculous. So he goes from Abram to Abraham. How about Sarai? What does Sarai mean? Next slide, please. It means my princess. And so Sarai is the princess of her tent, of her household, which is why it means my princess. She's not everyone's princess, just my princess in the context of her own household. How about Sarah? What does that mean? It simply means princess, queen. You remove the word my because in this context, she is the princess, not just of the tent or the household, but the entire multitude of nations. And so we go from being ordinary to being extraordinary. God changes the name because God wants to show them the future. Not only will you be a father of your own household, you're going to be a father of many. Not only will you be the princess of your own household, you'll be the queen of so many. This is God's promise to Abram and Sarai. This is why their names were, be, were to be changed to Abraham and Sarah. Now let's go take a look at the name change a little deeper. Next slide. There's the Hebrew of Abram and Sarai. On the left is the Hebrew. Notice what was added to the name to make it Abraham and to make it Sarah. What was added? It was a simple change. What did God do? All he did was add what? An H. Abram put an H in the middle. You got Abraham. Sarai changed the I into an H. You got Sarah. So it's the H. The H. You know what the H is in Hebrew? Next slide. Heh. Remember, in Hebrew, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet is not like the letters of our alphabet. Because in the Hebrew, every letter of the Hebrew alphabet has a meaning. This is why it's a unique language. 
in the universities that teach uh, Hebrew, what they teach the students is to understand the meaning of every alphabet. Because once you get a grasp of that, you already can understand 80% of the Hebrew language. So every letter has a definition. It has a meaning. For the word he, it means breeze, wind, spirit. In other words, God breathed into Abram and he became Abraham. God breathed into Sarai and she became Sarah. See that? Eh? It is a breath, the breath of God, which is reminiscent of Genesis 2 verse 7. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. So before the breath, before the eh, Adam was just dust ordinary clay but when god breathed into his nostrils the breath of life he became from being just dust to becoming what a living being and so the stress here the emphasis here is god's involvement and so when it was abram and sarai god's involvement was not yet evident next slide so when abram receives the h it means he receives the spirit of God. And when Sarai becomes Sarah, it means she has received the Spirit of God. So the name change tells us God is now involved in the life of Abram and Sarai. And when God is involved in your life, you go from ordinary to what? Extraordinary. You see, all it takes is one is God's breath. And an ordinary situation can become a miraculous one. This is what God wants Abram and Sarai to understand. It's also what God wants us to understand. It's not about us. It's about God. When, God's, when God gets involved in your life, be prepared for miracles in your life. And so after God involves himself now, the life of Abram and Sarai, Abraham and Sarah, now he expands the covenant. What does the covenant include now? Let's go Genesis 17, 7 to 8. I will keep my promise to you and to your descendants in future generations as an everlasting covenant. I will be your God and the God of your descendants. I will give to you and to your descendants this land in which you are now a foreigner. The whole land of Canaan will belong to your descendants forever and I will be there God. You see how he expands the covenant? Before, it was a promise concerning land and descendants. This time, there's a spiritual dimension to this covenant. God says, I will be there. God. A relationship with God. The right to worship God has been promised, has been made as an everlasting covenant to the descendants of Abraham and Sarah. This is important. Because if we want to worship God today, today, talking about today, we have to make sure we can find a link to Abraham and the covenant God makes here. You see that? If we want to make sure the worship that we are rendering to God today, we have to be able to find a link to the covenant that God made to Israel and to Jacob, the descendants of Abraham. Otherwise, we don't really have a spiritual basis for our worship of the living God because it's an everlasting covenant. Get that? This is so important. We need to realize how important that covenant 
that God has made to him and to Sarah is. Now, after making this covenant with Abraham and Sarah, what does God do next? It's very interesting. Genesis 17, 9 to 11. And God said to Abraham, your responsibility is to obey the terms of the covenant. Let's pause there for a while. You know that spiritual covenant God makes? There are terms to this covenant now. What's a covenant, by the way? It's an agreement. An agreement, right? And an agreement means God has his part. And we have our part. So God is telling Abraham, okay, God said, your responsibility is to obey the terms of the covenant. And up to this point, he doesn't know what that is. God is telling him now what the terms are. You might not like this. <laughs> what is it? You and all your descendants have this continual responsibility. This is the covenant that you and your descendants must keep. Each male among you must be circumcised. Ouch! Oh, no. You must cut off the flesh of your foreskin as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Oh, boy. Raise your hand if you're <laughs> circumcised. Just raise your hand. I'll believe you. That's all you need to tell me. <laughs> because God says your descendants... Right? Ought to be. This is part of the covenant that God makes. And this is how people will know they belong to the covenant family of God. They are circumcised. Now, what is the significance of circumcision? Why does God choose circumcision in the first place? Next slide. What are some of the significance of circumcision? What do you think? What is one? Next slide, please. It was a sealing, a sealing of the covenant with God. In Bible times, covenants were sealed sometimes with human blood. This is why it's called cutting a covenant, right? Cutting an agreement. This is why God involved himself with a ritual of splitting into the animals. Remember? Except for the birds. Remember that one? In Genesis, was that 14 or 15? All right. And so it is a sealing process. What else? Next slide. It was a sign that distinguished Abraham's descendants from the pagans, from the Gentiles. Because many tribes back then were identified by marks on their bodies or their language in Bible times. So one way by which you can distinguish the people of God back then was through circumcision. What else? Next slide. It was a symbol of purification and putting away wickedness and so it should remind them of renewing their life doing things the right way what else next slide it was also a suggestion to remind them of the covenant that they made with god what else and it was a step a step of obedience to the lord and of faith in him because after all it's not easy to cut foreskin right it's called surgery how many here know how to cut foreskin <laughs> you need surgical precision. And so God is telling them, you got to perform surgery. That's kind of like medical stuff, right? Can you imagine? I know. Maybe Brother Paul knows how to do circumcision. You don't know how to do circumcision? I mean, she works for the medical field. But, you know, when God makes us do things 
when God tells us to do something, even if it's like circumcision, you know, God has infinite wisdom. And you know, there's got to be some other benefit from that, right? God has a spiritual reason for why he required circumcision. But God also had a medical reason, a good reason, a practical reason. What is that? Next slide. Circumcision also has medical benefits. Did you know that? God knows what the people of Israel are going to go through. In the desert lands were little bathing. You don't get to bath, take a bath, right? Was done. Men suffered greatly from skin diseases. Circumcision helped prevent some of these diseases, such as trichomonas vaginalis, a venereal disease. Wives whose husbands are circumcised suffer less from, this, from diseases, such as cancer of the uterine, Survey. So there are medical benefits to circumcision that hold to scrutiny even up to this very day. This is why circumcision is a blessing. Not only does it serve a spiritual purpose, it serves a practical purpose as far as God is concerned. This is why tucked in Genesis and also in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you will find instructions of God that contain medical benefits. This is why the, the Holy Bible is really could be considered a medical book, right? Because it contains information that will protect us and keep us uh, preserved, not, not just spiritually, but also health-wise. Consider other ancient books, ancient religions. For example, next slide. Moses was educated in the superpower country of the, of the, during that time. It was Egypt. So when it comes to Egypt, their level of knowledge far exceeded the level of knowledge and wisdom of their counterparts. They represented human wisdom at its pinnacle. And in Egypt, they had what is called the wisdom of Egyptians, a book. And it's from the papyrus Ebers, discovered in 1332 BC. And they contain lots of different remedies. This is what Moses studied, okay? Moses studied. Moses wrote the book of? Genesis. Notice he mentions circumcision. But in this book from the Egyptians, next slide, if you had like an embedded splinter, how many here get splintered? According to their book, their wisdom book, okay? This is like, you know, the pinnacle of human wisdom. The Egyptians, you know what you had to do? If you had like a, an embedded splinter, according to that wise book, what do you had to do? Next slide. Apply worm's blood and ass's dung. <laughs> wow, that's supposed to help you out, right? All right, next slide. What if you're losing hair? <laughs> uh, anyone here losing hair? Yeah, okay. Well, the Egyptians had a medical answer for that. What, what did they say you had to do? Next slide. Apply six kinds of fats. Horse fat, hippopotamus fat, crocodile fat, cat fat, snake fat, and ibis fat. <laughs> If you apply all that fat on your scalp, you're going to gain hair. That's better than Rogaine, folks. <laughs> I don't know. I watched uh, Brother Cesar tonight. Is that fat? Can you give me some fat? <laughs> right. Next slide. How about if you're turning gray? Your hair's turning gray. Oh, the Egyptians had a medical response to that, too. What did they say you had to do? Next slide. Anoint with blood of black calf, <laughs> which has been boiled in oil or fat of a rattlesnake. <laughs> That's wisdom from the Egyptians. But God's medical wisdom 
was very different. Circumcision, validated by the medical fields today. Not only that, to give you an idea of the medical knowledge backed up in the Bible, located in the Bible. Do you know when, according to Moses, when they had to do the circumcision? <laughs> Let's find out. Genesis 17, 12 to 14, from generation to generation, every male child must be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. Not the first, the second, the third, not the ninth, not the tenth, but when? The eighth day after his birth. This applies not only to members of your family, but also to the servants born in your household and the foreign-born servants whom you have purchased. All must be circumcised. Your bodies will bear the mark of my everlasting covenant. That's why circumcision, I want you to keep this in mind, is the sign of the covenant. Circumcision, right? What kind of covenant is that? Everlasting covenant. Does it apply today? Yeah. <laughs> Does it? Well, if it's everlasting, the sign of the everlasting covenant is, what is it again? Circumcision. Any male who fails to be circumcised, what will happen to him? He'll be cut off from the covenant family for breaking the covenant. So either he cuts off his foreskin or he gets cut off from the people of God, right? The covenant family. This is why God took it seriously. When is circumcision supposed to take place? On the eighth day after his birth. Was that number chosen without purpose, without rhyme or reason? What do you think? There's a reason for everything. You know, every detail in the Bible is there for a reason. Why eighth day? According to medical research today, uh, this book called None of These Diseases by Dr. McMillan, on the eighth day, according to him, the amount of prothrombin present actually is elevated about 100% of normal and is the only day in the male's life in which this will be the case under normal conditions. If surgery, which is what circumcision is, is to be performed, day eight is the perfect day to do it. Vitamin K and prothrombin levels are at their peak. According to medical researchers, when the male who was born is on the eighth day after birth, that's the time when you have most vitamin K and prothrombin in your body. What's the purpose of vitamin K and prothrombin? Next slide. Vitamin K coupled with prothrombin causes blood coagulation. What does that mean? Blood clot. Because if you, if you cut the foreskin, it bleeds and it doesn't clot, what's going to happen to the child? It's going to die. It's going to bleed to death, right? Which, and so vitamin K coupled with prothrombin causes blood coagulation, which is important in any surgical procedure. A newborn infant has peculiar susceptibility to bleeding between the second and fifth days of life. Hemorrhages at this time, of course, are inconsequential, but sometimes are extensive. And they may produce serious damage to internal organs, especially to the brain, and cause death from shock and exsanguination. And so God tells us circumcision is good for us medical benefits. However, God makes sure we do it the right way, right? Because God is a righteous God. He does things the right way. And the right way to do this is the right day. The eighth day. Why the eighth day? Because the eighth day, next slide, here's a graph of how much prothrombin is available 
Look at day eight. Look at how it skyrockets. Right, day eight, the peak of available prothrombin, it just goes way up. Well, how about the ninth day? Next slide. It goes way down. There's only one day when you have the most available vitamin K and prothrombin. It is the eighth day. How did Moses know that? He didn't. <laughs> Who knew that? God did. God gave Moses the wisdom he was no medical doctor i mean the the medical things he studied were from the egyptians for crying out loud but god's wisdom is the wisdom that we need to do things the right way so god makes a covenant with them god changes their name which means one thing god is going to make a big announcement and before this i don't think abraham has seen a real miracle before right I have to look back. Okay, this could possibly be the, a big announcement from God. He, all, he changes their name. He reaffirms the covenant, expands the covenant, and now gives the instruction in terms of the covenant, which is circumcision. So God is up to something good, something big. What could that be? Let's find out. Genesis 17, and the verses are 15 down to 18. This is what it says. God said to Abraham, you must no longer call your wife Sarai. From now on, her name is Sarah. I will bless her and I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she will become the mother of nations. And there will be kings among her descendants. Abraham bowed down with his face touching the ground. But he began to laugh. <laughs> when he thought, can a man have a child when he is a hundred years old? Can Sarah have a child at 90 Yes, God, why not let Ishmael be my heir? And so what was the big announcement of God? He's telling Sarah, okay, you're going to bear a son. And then who starts laughing? <laughs> Abraham. You know, it could be a laughter of doubt. But I think, this, this is me, it's a laughter of delight. Maybe coupled with a little doubt. Right? A laughter of delight. It's like, for example, an angel of heaven were to come here and tell us, Kaofel, Kaofel, you're going to be pregnant. <laughs> and then Kafrank laughs with delight, right? So the laughter is not a laughter of doubt, but a laughter of delight. Yes! Right? And so here's Abram, there's Abraham. He tells God, why not Ishmael? Right? Because maybe he doesn't quite grasp, he's on the cusp. Of a miracle in his life and he does he doesn't quite grasp it yet why not Ishmael he's a practical guy Abraham right why not just Ishmael and so what does God say to Abram Abraham Genesis 17 verse 19 but God replied no Sarah your wife will give birth to a son for you you will name him Isaac you know what Isaac means it means he laughs it's a reminder of uh, Abram's delight when he found out, when God announced to Sarah, you're going to give birth to a son. And so you will name him Isaac, and I will confirm my covenant with him and his descendants as an everlasting covenant. So the covenant will be confirmed to Abram and also now to who? Isaac, right? Well, how about Ishmael? Genesis 17, 20, 22, as for Ishmael, I will bless him also. Just as you have asked, I will make him extremely fruitful and multiply his descendants. He will become the father of 12 princes. 
and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant, my covenant will be confirmed with Isaac, who will be born to you and Sarah about this time next year. When God had finished speaking, he left Abraham. And so what happened to Ishmael? He was blessed. This is why Ishmael became the father of 12 princesses. And they also multiplied because of the blessing of our Almighty God. However, the covenant, the basis of their worship of the living God, who was that going to be confirmed to? Confirmed with Isaac. Abraham to Isaac. And so this was announced by God to Abram. Abraham. I'm so used to Abram. I got to change gears. Abraham. Now, what does God say to Abraham after God finished speaking? Or what did Abraham do after God left? Let's read Genesis 17, 23 to 27. This, these are the closing passages of chapter 17 of uh, Genesis. On that very day, Abraham took his son, Ishmael, and every male in his household, including those born there and those he had brought. Then he circumcised them, cutting off their foreskins, just as God had told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised. And Ishmael, his son, was 13. Both Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised on that same day, along with all the other men and boys of the household, whether they were born there or bought as servants. All were circumcised with him. And so after God left, right, what did Abram do? He obeyed. He's a man of faith. He obeyed. Why? Because God is the El Shaddai. He is the Almighty. God. And so he obeyed God. He walked with God. And so he circumcised himself and also who? Ishmael and all the other males, male people, including the servants. All were circumcised. That was a lot of work, right? You know, that's a lot of work. But Abraham obeyed our almighty God. You know, the Arab people, do they also circumcise their kids? The Arab? Actually, they do. But you know when? When they're 13. To keep up with the tradition. When was Ishmael circumcised? When he was 13. The Jews, when did they circumcise their, their sons? Eight. Right? To keep up with the biblical uh, teaching. And so God says, this is my covenant. If you keep it, I will be your God. And so God was with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel during the days of the kings. God was with them. But we know what happened during the days of the kings, right? When finally God's promise was fulfilled. And during the days of Solomon, the people of Israel multiplied. The people of Israel became powerful and became recognized throughout the land. When God's promise was fulfilled, when they became great. Sometimes when you become great, you become proud. You stop relying on God and you begin to rely on your greatness. That's the beginning of what? Your downfall, right? This is why sometimes the greatest enemy is success. Because if you don't manage success, you might be led and tempted to hold on to your success. You forget about the source of why you succeed in the first place. Who is that? Our Almighty God. So what happened to Israel? After they reached the pinnacle of their success, they, be, they just fell. They turned away from God. Their kings became wicked and evil. They turned away from the Lord God. The people of Israel turned their backs on the Almighty. 
And so what happened to the people of Israel? They became the slaves of the Assyrians and eventually the Babylonians, right? But God has an everlasting covenant, right? And so what did God remember during the days of captivity? Let's read the book of Psalms 105, 8 to 10. He remembers his covenant forever. The word which he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. Yes, they were in captivity in Babylon. God was punishing them. Jerusalem was destroyed. But God remembered his covenant. And because he remembers his covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Israel. What did God do? Despite the fact the people of Israel were in Babylon in captivity. Despite the fact they turned away from God. But because of his covenant, what did God do? Isaiah. Remember this verse? Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, 1 and 4. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. Since you were precious in my sight, you have been made, you have been honored, and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Yes, the people of Israel turned away from God. And so they were held captives in Babylon. But God remembers the covenant. And so what did God say? And the bottom part says, therefore, I will give men. I have redeemed you. I have ransomed you. I have given men for you, people for your life. In other words, God will leave behind a small remnant to continue the work of worshiping God. Do you know that? Even after the captivity, God had a promise because the covenant is everlasting. And so it has to continue. And so he left behind a very small remnant. I will give men for you, people for your life. Where will they come from? Isaiah 43 verse 3. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for you for your ransom, Ethiopia and Sheba in your place. And so God says... I'm going to give men for you as a ransom. They will continue the work of worshiping God, even though the people of Israel turned away from God and are in uh, Babylonia. What did God say? I gave Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sheba for you. You know, after reading this passage, I'm going to read to you a note. Is that okay? This note came from Ka'erdi, Brother Iranio Gimanalo, in a worship service dated July 23, 1998 concerning uh, those who were ransomed, men given to Israel to keep the covenant that God made with Israel from Egypt, Sheba, and Ethiopia. This is what the note says after reading Isaiah 43, verse 3. According to this prophecy, God gave Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sheba as a ransom for Israel. How did Egypt serve as a ransom for Israel? When the Jews became slaves in Babylon, the ones who continued serving God, see there's a continuation, right? Were the Jews who were in Egypt, the majority of whom lived in what later became Alexandria. So there was a small remnant. What did they do? They continued the work of serving the Lord God. This is this, and so they, they went to Alexandria. This is the city in Egypt, which is also called the city of the Jews. Hence, the Lord was also made known to the Egyptians 
and they had an altar for the Lord God at the very center of Egypt. Imagine that. God used a very small remnant to build a city. A city that became well known, became the city of the Jews. You see, a very small remnant was given a task to build a city. Right? What else? Hence, the Lord, uh, these people of Ethiopia and Sheba had also known God. In fact, some of them left paganism, accepted the laws of the Jews, and became Jews themselves. There had been three kinds of Jews, the native Israelites, the Greek Jews or the Hellenists, and the proselytes, of which belonged those who were converted to Judaism, that came from different races. It was through these people from Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sheba, that served as ransom for Israel, that God saved the people of Israel during the time of adversities. Again, this came from the lesson taught by Brother Iranya G. Manalo in the worship service dated July 23, 1998. So we can see God honors his covenant. Even if his people turns away, there's always a small remnant, always a small remnant. Why? Because of the covenant that he made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Israel. Now, who also, besides those who were in Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sheba, who were also men that God would give to Israel to continue the covenant, the everlasting covenant God made with Abraham. Let's read Isaiah 43, 4 to 6. So precious are you to me, so honored, so beloved. I will sacrifice lands for you and nations instead of you. From the far east will I bring your offspring. And from the far west, I will gather you. I will bid the Northlands give them up and bid the South let go, bringing my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Do you remember this prophecy? Besides those from Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sheba, who also are the men that God will give to Israel to honor the covenant that God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Israel, an everlasting covenant. The Bible says he will also bring his offsprings, the offsprings of these Hebrews from the far east and gather them also to the far west. During what time? Ends of the earth. Where is this place going to come from? Isaiah 24, 15 and 16. Therefore in the east, give glory to the Lord. Exalt the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. In the islands of the sea, from the ends of the earth, we hear singing glory to the righteous one. Place, islands of the sea. Where? Far east. When? Ends of the earth. This is why during our time, we have a basis for our worship of God. God has a covenant that he makes during the ends of the earth that's connected to the covenant that he made with who? Abraham. Isn't that nice? Who became the fulfillment of this prophecy? The church of Christ in these last days. Of course, God's relationship with people does not depend on races. You can be Jew or Filipino or Chinese or Hispanic. It doesn't matter. Because what matters now is who? Christ. If you are Christ, you are Abraham's seed. Nevertheless, God's work began with the covenant. The covenant that God made with Abraham. Now after this, I mean, what is the, what is the proof that this link, this link that God made to Abraham is linked to our work today? Let's go back to another prophecy, Isaiah 41, 8 to 9. But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of, my, the descendants of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you 
and I'll not cast you away. Fear not. What does it say? You worm. Jacob, you men of Israel, I will help you, says the Lord and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. In this prophecy, God mentions Jacob. You worm Jacob, who was the fulfillment messenger of God in these last days. You men of Israel, the fruit of his work, the members of the church of Christ are called Jacob and Israel. Not only because of a spiritual connection, but perhaps maybe there's also a physical connection between those in the Far East and the Hebrew people. What if? I want you to think about that. Could there be a connection between the original inhabitants of the Filipino or the, of the Philippines and the Hebrew people, the descendants of Abraham? I want you to think about this. Uh, next slide. When Magellan's crew, remember Magellan? Who discovered the Philippines again? They discovered the Philippines. When Magellan went there, the Philippines was already there, right? And they had their own culture. They had their own people. It's unfortunate that our history of the Philippines kind of begins with the Spanish, right? They kind of wrote the history for us. But here's Magellan for the first time arriving in the Philippines. When Magellan's crew arrived in 1521, his assistant and historian Antonio Pigafetta, an Italian scholar and explorer who traveled with him, wrote in his journal, chapter 34, during the time when they tried to introduce Catholicism. For the first time, because it's the first time they go to the Philippines. They discover the Philippines and they want to bring Catholicism there. And when they get there, they try to introduce Catholicism for the first time amongst the native inhabitants in Limasawa, Southern Leyte. Anyone here know where that is? Southern Leyte? The turf of then Rejas, Colambu, and Sayu. Okay, so when we look at the journal, because these are historians, and historians like to observe and write. When we look at the journal of Antonio Pigafetta, this is what he had to say when they landed in the Philippines and tried to introduce Catholicism. Next slide. Again, the captain had them ask if they were Moors or pagans and what they believed in. They replied that they did not worship any other way than by raising their joined hands to the sky and calling on their God, Abba, for which thing the captain was overjoyed, and seeing this is the first king raised his joined hands to the sky. When they discovered the inhabitants there in the Philippines, what did they find out? These inhabitants, they only knew one way of worship. What was that? To look up to the sky and believed in one God whom they call who? Abba. What is Abba? That's the Hebrew word for Father, who do you think? How did they know that? Unless they were Hebrew, right? So even before Magellan discovered the Philippines, they were practicing the Hebrew religion. Just like in Egypt, in Ethiopia, and Sheba. Could it be the reason why God chose the Philippines? It's because of the Hebrew heritage in keeping up with the covenant that God made to Abraham, not only spiritually, but even physically. Could be, right? Something to think about. Praises be to our almighty God. This is why the Church of Christ in these last days and its emergence is the fulfillment of prophecy. However, because we know God's promise, we, we know God's nature, the people of God's, 
God's people, their nature is when they reach glory, what happens to them? They fall, right? This is why in Isaiah 24, 15 and 16, we left out part B. Because after they reach glory, what happens? This is what happens. Isaiah 1, 8 to 9. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth and a vineyard, as a hut in the garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. And so the people of God, according to scriptures, in following the pattern of God's people in the history of the Holy Scriptures, when they reach the zenith of their power, their glory, what happens? They forget God. They begin to fall and turn away from Him. It's also what happened in these last days. But God said He has a very small remnant. Just like He left a remnant back in the days of uh, the Egypt, the uh, occupation and, and captivity in Babylon. God also left a very small remnant. What is their purpose? What is their assignment? What is their work? Well, God will not leave His city besieged. What will God do with a very small remnant? He will rebuild. That besieged city. You see that? He will rebuild that besieged city. Remember, the people of God is represented by a city. A city of God. A very small remnant God left behind. If God did not do that, they would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah, complete destruction. But God left a very small remnant to do the work of rebuilding the besieged city. When will they start doing that work? Let's read the book of Isaiah 126. I will give you judges like you had long ago, advisors like you had in the beginning. After that, you will be called the righteous city, the faithful town. When will this rebuilding of the city that was besieged, when will it take place? After God fulfills His promise, I will give you judges and advisors. This is why it says that after that, the building begins. After that, what will be the result of the building process? You will be called the righteous city, the faithful town. This is where our work as the very small remnant is to rebuild the city of God, to make her a righteous city again, a faithful town. This is our work between now and the day when God will send His begotten Son. We need to restore righteousness. How do we do that? Next slide. By making right everything that is wrong. You know, when you're going to build a city, you don't build starting from what is wrong. Right? You do, th do things the right way. After the Babylonian captivity, when they wanted to rebuild the temple, they had to get government authority. They had to do it the right way. Right? It has to be legal, not illegal. Right? And so what does the Bible tell us? We want to begin things, doing it the right way, doing it legally. Legally. The eyes of men, especially the eyes of our almighty God. And so we have to bring, make everything wrong right. And so God has chosen us, the very small remnant, to continue the work of God, right? Do we have God's covenant? Yes! Yes! Question is, do we have the sign of God's covenant? Do you remember the sign of God's everlasting covenant? What is, God's, what is the sign of God's everlasting covenant again? Circumcision! Circumcision. <laughs> Wait a minute, does it mean... The, the brothers and the sisters are going to be circumcised? Yes! Because that's the sign. That's the sign of the everlasting covenant. But what kind of circumcision? In the Christian era. Let's read. 
because we have to make things wrong, right? Right? Let's read Colossians 2 verse 11. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. That is our sign. That is our sign. This is why our work, brethren, as the very small remnant, is to live up to our sign of the covenant. Right? Spiritual circumcision, cutting away your sinful nature. So what do we need to cut away from our life? What do we need to put to death in our life? Let's read the final passage of our studies today. Colossians 3 verse 5, you must put to death, you have to cut off. Then the earthly desires at work in you, such as sexual immorality, indecency, lust, evil passions, and greed. For greed is a form of idolatry. See, we have to be different from the world. That's the purpose of circumcision, to be cut off. The word holy means to be cut off, to be separated. God's work is, a God, is the work of separation, not the so-called convergence, separation from the world. Did you get that? That's God's work. And how do we begin that work? By cutting ourselves from evil desires, like sexual immorality. You know what sexual immorality includes? Homosexuality. Okay. What else? Fornication. Having a relationship, you know, sexual relationship outside of marriage. What else? Adultery. You know how you can commit adultery? What is adultery? When you have a relationship with someone who's married. Even if you're single and you have a relationship with someone who's married, it's called what? Adultery. Sexual immorality. What else? Indecency, lust, evil passions, and greed. The Bible says, get rid of this. Cut this off from you. We need to do that if we want to build a city of righteousness. This is the sign of God's covenant that he made with Abraham. And this is what we need to fulfill. Our part of the terms of the covenant, right? God did his. God will do his. We have to fulfill our part now to live a righteous life, a holy life, cut off from the ways of the world okay that is that is our lesson for tonight let us all stand and we shall pray together almighty and everlasting father thank you so much for enlightening our minds giving us hope of the future because father we have true basis for our worship the everlasting covenant that you made with abraham isaac and jacob we believe father that you are with us and we know we have the work of rebuilding the city to become again a city of righteousness help us to do our part to keep the terms of the covenant to live a holy and upright life and help us father to rely on you you work in us and through us that we can fulfill our purposes bless everyone here those who are joining us through the internet bless us all oh god in our work together please forgive our sins we ask all things in the name of our lord jesus christ amen Amen.